Two weeks ago, we introduced our audience to Eric and Lisa Melendez. You'll remember Lisa as the mom who had a fateful premonition when her son's body was found on the train tracks in rural Dorchester County, South Carolina. Somehow, inexplicably, she knew long before the words were said, the sound of the police scanner igniting a primal response within her heart. It was a snapshot of a mother's love. The investigation into the suspicious death of Daniel Reed Smith is about to take some very dark twists and turns. We're going to be going to some places that don't make sense, in some places that are probably going to make your stomach turn and your blood boil. Unlike the last episode, things are going to get a bit graphic as we necessarily explore this violent death. So consider this a bit of a trigger warning. We won't be going into great detail, lingering long, or going any further than necessary to understand the questions that remain in this case. His family calls him DJ, and so will we. DJ suffered a very violent end. His body endured massive post-mortem damage. It was a grim and also elusive crime scene, and the investigation wouldn't have been an easy one under any circumstances, not for the family and not for law enforcement. Welcome back to Fitz Files, your new home for true crime and corruption, wherever you download podcasts. I'm your host, founding editor Will Folks of FitzNews.com. Two weeks ago, our team introduced you to a new investigation, Death on the Tracks, the story of Daniel Reed D.J. Smith of Dorchester County, South Carolina. This week, we go beyond what started this story, a grieving mother's premonition. This week, we start digging taking a look at the unexplained circumstances and unanswered questions which still surround DJ's death. As this family demands justice and seeks accountability, our team is taking the journey along with them, searching for the same things ourselves, searching for the truth. For more on this graphic crime scene, here's Fitz News researcher and reporter Callie Lyons. Whatever happened to DJ prior to that point, This encounter with the train more than 14 hours after the mass was first detected on the tracks no doubt worsened the situation, confusing the injuries he originally sustained and complicating the retrieval of evidence. In an incident report filled out by the conductor, he claimed the train struck DJ's head. It wouldn't have been the first one. During the stretch of time between the 4 a.m. train, the one that first caught DJ on video, and the one that reported him lying on the tracks, another train had come through approximately three hours earlier. It would have struck DJ too, as would any other train passing that way during those hours. His body was pummeled. Situated as it was between the tracks, there was a clearance of about two feet. Despite that distance, chains and other metal pieces that dangle from the bottom of fast-moving trains beat him severely. He suffered full-body trauma and localized injuries. For the most part, though, his body was intact. Considering the force that struck him, this was difficult to understand. One shoulder was nearly separated from his body, and one of his legs was cut off below the knee. These injuries appear to have occurred post-mortem. 
His body showed signs of dragging under the train, however, not to the extent that this alone could explain his location a mile into the swampy woods. Taking into account the only bit of evidence from those early morning hours, the video captured from the passing train, we know DJ was near the place where his body was eventually recovered, an unidentified mass on the tracks. We also know he was, at the very least, already incapacitated less than three hours after he was last seen alive and well. The distance from Ashley's home to the railroad tracks was significant, nearly four miles as the crow flies, diminishing the likelihood he simply walked all that way and put himself there for no particular reason. The damage to his body was bad, but it wasn't as bad as it would have been had he been lying across the tracks or standing in front of the train. Even so, his injuries were extensive and brutal. None of it made sense. If, as suspected, someone killed DJ and put his body on the tracks, was its placement intended to destroy evidence of a murder, or was he dumped there to ensure his body was found at a prescribed time, or both? Were his murderers concealing their crime and simultaneously buying time? Something happened. What that something was, we do not know yet. But whatever it was, it left DJ on the railroad tracks, incapacitated, where he was run over repeatedly until his brutalized body was finally discovered. Further complicating the investigation were the circumstances leading up to DJ's violent death. A toxicology report concluded DJ had methamphetamine and cannabis in his system when he died. According to statements given to law enforcement, DJ had used drugs for several years, but he got clean and stayed clean for approximately a year. However, in the weeks before his death, he had been hanging out with some of his former drug buddies, and as he did so, he was also distancing himself from his family. It had been a month since DJ's family had seen him, at his son's birthday party in July. While difficult for Lisa and Eric to discuss, they know the fact DJ had a prior history of drug use is not something that can be ignored if they are seeking the truth. It's part of his story, but it does not define who he was. As we detailed in the first episode of Death on the Tracks, the night before DJ's body was found, he attended a bonfire party with people he believed to be his friends. And while some reports have him arriving that evening with a friend named Trevor McGee, the fact was he had spent the day with Ashley Adams, one of the girls who lived there. They were friends, and had been for some time. We were best friends. Okay. Like, we were attached at the hip, pretty much. You've seen him, you've seen me, you've seen me, you've seen him. You know, we were always together, okay. always hanging out. Always looking out for each other, and he was a good, he was a good guy. So I don't understand. DJ and Ashley also sold drugs together. She said, according to her, the arrangement worked like this: she was good with money, he had the connections. Okay, like I'm gonna be straight up honest. Yep. We had a little, we had a partnership going, like a little business thing going. I would hold the money, mm -hmm. and. I wouldn't say I had clients or anything. I had customers, you know, but I wasn't a dealer, you know. 
I'm not here very, to judge you. I just want to know what happened. Very night. few people will come to me and they were like, hey, Ash, you know, I need a little something, something. I'm like, all right, well, I got you. He had the connection and I had the, you know, like I said, I had the customers. Okay. And I would hold the money because he, he, said he, he said that he was bad with money. So I was like, all right, so I'll hold on to the money. DJ was at a party, a bonfire, with about a dozen people with recreational proclivities. That part is known. At some point after the party, he took off on foot, and we lose track of him. There are plenty of suspects, and while a motive isn't clear, we have a cast of shady characters and the prevalence of drugs. It is worth mentioning that nearly all of the theories of DJ's murder in all of the suspects have something to do with illegal drugs one way or another. Here are a few examples. DJ overdosed. DJ suffered meth psychosis. DJ was robbed for drugs. DJ was killed for drugs. DJ was a part of a drug deal gone wrong. DJ was trying to buy drugs or otherwise obtain them from someone who owed him. DJ was high on drugs and walked into the path of an oncoming train. See what I mean? This is certainly a chicken and egg kind of situation. What came first? The assumption this mysterious death was related to drug activity? Or did that come into play only after we know the toxicology report from his autopsy indicated the presence of meth and weed? It is given that DJ and his friends were consumers of recreational drugs. Drugs were a part of their party vibe, and like it or not, that is the scene of this story. Trevor McGee told deputies DJ had been awake for two days before the party. He planned to spend that night on Ashley's couch. However, the party was still full-blown when he laid down in Ashley's bed and fell asleep. Within a short period of time, he was awakened twice. Trevor woke him up as he was leaving the party, and later Ashley woke him up to ask him to move to the couch. When she did, he had an attitude, and an argument ensued. Twenty minutes later, an exhausted DJ was leaving the trailer on foot, heading towards Ridgeville. He was carrying a backpack and a cell phone with 3% power. That's it. That's all we know for sure. That's where the trail of certainty ends and the absence of verifiable information takes over. The next 18 hours and what transpired involving DJ during that time remains a mystery to this day. When Lisa and Eric were formally notified by the coroner's office, the message was clear. DJ was killed and then placed on the tracks. They were told by authorities that more information would become available through the autopsy report and investigation. With that statement as their frame of reference, what else was there to do but pursue the truth to find the killer or killers of their son? The autopsy determined the primary cause of DJ's death as full-body blunt force trauma. The manner of death, quote, best described as accidental. The coroner's office was holding their final report until the close of the investigation. The evidence supporting the conclusion given to Lisa and Eric did not yet exist. The crime scene was far from ideal. Despite the compulsory collection of evidence when D.J.'s body was recovered from the tracks, the investigation by the Sheriff's Department did not get started until nine days later. 
for reasons unknown, nine days passed before anyone was interviewed. Ten days after that, or nearly three weeks after T.J.'s death, Dorchester County Sheriff Elsie Knight asked SLED for assistance. At the end of November, more than three months later, the sheriff formally requested SLED take the lead in the investigation. Special Agent David Owen was assigned to the case. There was plenty to investigate, but sorting through the bits and pieces of information that came into investigators piecemeal, in no particular order, was no easy task. Here's where the facts leave us wanting. This story has a victim, a grieving mother, signs of murder, suspicious characters, hell's angels, drug dealers with names, drug dealers whose identities remain unknown, premonitions, prayers, sneaks, sleuths, and dreamers, a bonfire, an abandoned house, railroad tracks, the sound of a gunshot, a truck, and even a tale about a dog. But what it lacks is an answer. The investigation lacks a verifiable conclusion that takes into account all of the evidence and explains what happened to DJ. We know the beginning, the bonfire party, and we know the end, the train tracks. We need to know what happened in the middle. And an awful lot of people seem to believe the abandoned house is the location for the middle. The abandoned house can be tied to a handful of suspects. Most of them are related to the elderly homeowner. This house is, and has been, abandoned due to his extended stay in a long-term care facility. This abandoned house in Ridgeville comes up as often as the setting for a number of different scenarios concocted to explain the events of that night. DJ didn't seem to be the kind of person who got into a lot of arguments or physical confrontations, certainly not the type who made lethal enemies, which would seem to rule out premeditated murder. On the other end of the spectrum of possibilities, an accident cannot fully explain what happened to DJ. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, any any little bit of information that his sisters or, you know, Lisa uh, obtained from people in the community or the, his friends, uh, you know, I typed a lot of that up and I, I would funnel that over to um, Sam Richardson, you know, the uh, chief deputy work, uh, works for LC Knight. And, uh, and then I would uh, copy or send it to Ray Dixon, who was the captain over criminal investigations division he used to be my captain uh, but I would funnel that over anything I got I would funnel it to them in writing mm -hmm. just so they would have it not to interfere in their investigation but just like any other investigation um, you know that I that I would be assigned to I would want the family you know of the victim to participate in any information they receive and that's what we always try and do is we try and encourage the family to provide us any and all information about where they're at, uh, any rumors that they hear, because those rumors turn in sometimes to reality. Right. Uh, and if you don't, if you don't take some of those and filter through them, you could miss a, a huge connection to that person's death. Uh, but that's pretty much what I did. Uh, you know, I sent it all over there, and I continue to do that uh, all through. Um, all through my entire process of uh, eventually, you know, um, it got to a point to where 
um, and I hate to fast forward, but, you know, it gets to the autopsy portion of it. And, uh, you know, I, I knew the pathologist that was doing the autopsy, um, Dr. Patalis, and I called him. I called him um, as a stepfather. I didn't call him as a investigator, detective, and I made that very clear when I called him that it was a personal uh, call that he was uh, performing an autopsy or had performed an autopsy on my stepson and I just wanted to give him some background on him uh, and what I knew you know as a father and I think it's important I, I think it's important because every autopsy that I've ever attended I've always tried to provide the pathologist with as much background of the scene and that person's activity, what I could provide to help them make a better decision on the outcome of what caused the death. Right, uh, was, you know, what, what they were doing leading up to when they died. Correct. And uh, so when I did that, you know, out of courtesy, uh, he called uh, the coroner's office and sent him an email that I'd inquired and it started uh, it started some negativity between I guess me and um, Dorchester County, but the coroner's office took that email over to the sheriff's office. They right next door to one another, and um, the next thing you know, I get a call from my close friend asking me to meet him at five o'clock um, p.m. at a restaurant across the street from where I worked at the solicitor's office. And I asked him for what, and he goes, just be there. And so when I met him at 5, uh, I was told by him that I needed to stop. And I said, stop what? And you need to stop. You need to stay out of it, out of the investigation. And I said, I'm not in it. And he goes, well, you called the pathologist. And I said, yes, I did. You know, uh, But he will tell you that I called as a stepfather. I didn't call to inquire about the investigation or any other information. Um, but he goes, you need to be in the chief's office tomorrow at 10 and, um, and, uh, or they're going to call your boss, uh, you know, meaning David Pascoe. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't work for him. I didn't have to be in his office. I had responsibilities at solicitor's office. So, you know, I told my, I told my friend, you know, I said, look, I said, you can relay two messages. You can relay to them that I'm not going to be there tomorrow morning. Um, and if they felt compelled to call my boss and tell him that, uh, then by all means, go right ahead. And they did. I mean, they called, they called him, and uh, David Pasco was in the office the next morning. And you know, I did sit down with him, and I explained to him my actions and what I did. And, you know, David Pasco is a very honorable man. Um, I have a lot of respect for him, and he, he supported my decision. Uh, you know, as long as I didn't use my, uh, you know, my position or any resources, you know, the, at the solicitor's office, you know, to, um, you know, investigate his death, right. you know, I, I'm well within my, um, my, uh, my own right. You're walking a fine line between an investigator and a father. Yes. DJ's family was determined to assist law enforcement in any way possible. They took seriously the task of reporting every possible lead, evidence, or information they received in order to aid the investigation. For them, it was a matter of solemn duty. The family's assistance was not welcome, though. 
and that would become apparent in so many ways as the investigation proceeded. Agent Owen's 44-page report reads like the primary objective was to discredit any information provided by the family, not to solve a suspicious death. His annoyance is clear throughout, particularly with Lisa. Quote, agent's note, SLED became involved in the investigation on August 29, 2018. Additionally, Daniel Smith's family provided investigators with multiple theories of how Daniel Smith was murdered. Subsequent investigation, no evidence or information from interviews supported the family's theories. End quote. Not only were Lisa's efforts not taken seriously, often the information was dismissed outright, or Lisa was told she would need to provide additional information in writing before the lead could be investigated. Quote, Lisa Melendez was very vocal that Daniel Smith's death was the result of a homicide and would not settle for anything other than arrest. End quote. Yet, there was plenty amiss and plenty investigators were missing. Investigators went to places in Ridgeville looking for video footage that might have captured DJ's movements that night. This happened on August the 30th, 20 days later. They found no one who kept their surveillance videos longer than 10 days. A list of partygoers was provided. However, one individual was identified only as Mizell and the mystery of the name of the mystery guest was never cleared up by local law enforcement or by the SLED investigation. This isn't the only person who investigators failed to identify or interview. There were at least four people who fell into this category. Search warrants indicate that investigators asked Verizon for records from two phone numbers. The deceased made contact with both of these numbers on the night he was killed. If there was follow-up on the matter of the phones, it is not documented. Some of the people who had been at the party stated they found out DJ was dead the following morning. How is that possible, considering his body wasn't discovered until that evening? One party-goer said DJ was dead in a conversation that took place at noon the following day, seven hours before his body would be recovered on the tracks. How did they know? It's tempting to think that maybe the answer to that question could be found in the one recurrent lead that might have given investigators some semblance of true north. The explanation that came up in conversation most often was very specific. Steve Creel was bragging that he shot and killed DJ. Steve Creel had been at the party. He was dating Catherine, Ashley's roommate. He departed some time before DJ took off walking down the road toward Ridgeville. It isn't clear what particular beef he would have had with DJ, although the locals had their theories. So the motives attributed to this wild claim came in various flavors, along with a choice of circumstances. However, there was one factor that consistently tied to the local gossip naming Steve Creel, and that was a specific location the abandoned house. As time marched on and the investigation provided no conclusions, the story making its way through the community began veering off in all sorts of different directions, filling a vacuum, if you will. 
In some of these stories, DJ was shot or suffocated at the abandoned house and then moved to the railroad tracks. However, the conversation narrowed its focus to a set of suspects, a pair of accomplices for Steve Creel. The prevailing theory taking shape was that DJ was murdered by Steve Creel with two of his cousins, Matthew Creel and Michael Muckenfuss, aka Michael Arana. When Michael Muckenfuss suffered a gunshot wound that cost him an eye shortly after DJ's death, it was seen as supporting evidence. Taking this into account made the burgeoning theory richer, as it could be easily surmised through the rumor mill that there was a connection, which made the incident in which Michael was shot something like a warning not to talk. Michael Muckenfuss, aka Arana, later claimed it was a failed suicide attempt, which could have investigative implications of its own. If some witnesses provided confusing or inaccurate information or appeared to be intentionally deceptive, there was one whose statement was so verifiably false it was brazenly astounding. Matthew Creel stated he did not know DJ and was not at Catherine Boyd and Ashley Adams' party. He told investigators he observed vehicular activity at the abandoned house on the night in question. From his vantage point next door, he described observing his cousins Steve Creel and Michael Arana enter the home with someone else. He didn't know who. Matthew said his dog was barking and he heard a gunshot from the abandoned house. He said he believed someone shot at his barking dog because the dog soon returned. This was already a strange tale, but it gets stranger when you consider this. Matthew did not have a dog. In November, three months after DJ was found on the tracks, Eric Melendez advised investigators that two individuals who were incarcerated at the Dorchester County Detention Center had information about Daniel's death. Trent Hogg and Sean Scott were interviewed, and their statements went the way of so many others in this investigation. Their comments were categorized as hearsay, quickly dispensed with, and ignored when those doing the interviewing determined that they had no direct knowledge and summarily dismissed every word they said. Though the reason isn't clear, this happened over and over again. In one instance, a person who phoned a detective to share what she knew found herself shut down immediately. Within seconds, the detective aggressively told her she didn't know what she was talking about. When citizens attempted to sleuth independently, their efforts were met with some mix of scorn and ridicule. So it was with Teresa, a relative of the Creels. After hearing quite a bit about the alleged murder, she decided to investigate for herself. Teresa went to the abandoned house looking for evidence. The first time she went with Matthew Creel, she asked a few questions, looked around, and left. When she returned, she brought a female relative and videotaped the visit. She took cuttings from the abandoned house to be tested for blood. Coordinating with Eric Melendez and then with SLED, she provided the video and the cuttings for laboratory testing. Eric ran a preliminary test and the cuttings were found to be presumptive for the presence of blood. Lisa had started her um, memorial page for DJ. Justice. Justice page, sorry. Um, 
And a lady reached out to her that was one of the witnesses that saw these cars going up to that house. And the next day, apparently, them two, they went into that house, these two people, and they said that they observed blood. She said, there's blood in that house. I know there is. I saw it. So, you know, uh, almost eight months later, she, she connects with Lisa because somebody tells her about her page and she connects and she goes, I know there's blood in the house. I'm going to go through that house and I'm going to get that stuff because that house is related to the boyfriend that she was with that saw those cars. So she goes in that house, takes somebody else with her and she videos collecting random pieces of what she considers blood. There was spatter on the door, on a door, a blanket. Uh, she got some carpet um, and she took a swatch from a chair um, that had a round circle on it. It looked like blood to me. Um, so she brings all of that to Lisa. And what I do is I order a test kit from Amazon for blood. Um, it doesn't differentiate between animal or human, but I got the blood test. Same blood test kit that we would use uh, in forensics. Like a blue star. Uh, yeah, it was nitophaline or fetal, fetal failing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, use peroxide and, and one or two other chemicals. I, I don't do it a whole lot. So what I did was I get the kit and I videoed that entire process. I, I laid all of those items out. Um, and then um, I opened the kit up and I used a control strip just to confirm after the fact. I tested four different items. They all tested presumptive for blood. Um, and the next day I was, I had left the, sh uh, the solicitor's office um, and I'd gone to work for another agency uh, because I was so close to all of that, I needed to get away from it. So I went to work for another agency as a detective. I won't disclose who they were. Um, but I called the agent, David Owen, and I told him that um, I asked him, hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, and, um, he, and I said, what's going on? He goes, well, I'm closing the case right now, as a matter of fact. And I said, well, I got some news for you. And that's when I told him that I'd, you know, had some property brought to me. I tested it from the abandoned house that he said he'd already gone through. And I said it tested positive for blood. He goes, well, I need to get that from me. So I met him. I didn't have that with me. So I went to my house. I met him at the Flying J in Jedburg, And I turned it all over through a chain of custody. I gave him everything that I had. I gave him a copy of the video. And, um, and then I gave him a copy of the or I gave them the Q-tips and some of the fragments that were still left, I gave them some of that too, so they could test it. Um, so the next day, um, he, he ends up, the 18th, he ends up going and interviewing this lady that goes through the house at Dorchester County. Audio and video recorded, I have a copy of that through Discovery. And uh, she tells him, she shows him the video he wants a copy of it. I think they get a copy of it. Um, and then he tells her at the end that I want you to know something. He goes, I, I want you to know that you're tampering with evidence, you know, that, that that's a crime scene. And, um, so when he tells her, when he tells her that, you know, you might find, you might find yourself in a place that you don't want to be. In other words, read between the lines, he's threatening to tell her that she could end up in jail because she's tampering with the crime scene and evidence. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting there watching it, and I was like, you just went through that house eight months ago. 
over eight months ago and you concluded there was nothing in there. So now why are you crucifying her because she felt compelled to come to my wife because she knew, knew what she saw almost, a, what, a year ago. She had rode back to that, to that house that night, and she said she wished she would have called 911 then. She pulled up to that abandoned house because it was her boyfriend that lived next door, and she saw them get back there because they had stopped at his house first and beat on the door, I guess needing help, and then went to the abandoned house because he said he wasn't going out, you know, going to the door. And she went back there. Um, and then she came back up, got him. They went to the ga gas station and the bank. And that van was following them. Um, but when they went in that house, it's a small community. And everybody knows everything. So if they were in that house eight months before that, they weren't in there very long. Because it's one road. And everybody out there talks, talks to each other. And they would have known if they had been out there very long. Um, so apparently it was a quick walkthrough, nothing videoed. We don't have anything on that. Um, then the second time I was told that they were going through that house. They were tearing down walls. I'll never forget that. They were tearing down walls and we're going to find what's there. And I said, thank you so much like this is long overdue and he said um he said I promise you you know I'll get back with you the next time he got back with me he said that must have been animal blood because there was nothing there I said so that was a slaughterhouse for animals what are you saying because there was blood everywhere and he said I don't know I said well where are the animal bones I mean, they couldn't get out of this house, so if it was animal blood, there has to be carcasses in there, right? And it would have been a slaughterhouse. I don't know. Time is no respecter of evidence, thus the 48-hour rule. Crimes not solved within the first 48 hours prove exponentially more difficult to solve. That's under the best of circumstances, when investigators are open to all possibilities. Throughout this investigation, though, SLED comes off as reluctant to accept leads and slow to react to those that somehow manage to get through. Time and again, they fail to act before it's too late. And then there's this from SLED's own report. Quote, Over the course of the investigation, Lisa Melendez provided many names of persons possibly involved in Daniel Smith's death. Other names were developed or learned through course of the investigation. Special Agent Owen did not interview every name provided or mentioned because their involvement could not be corroborated or their alleged involvement was not established during the investigation. Furthermore, some of the persons were not formally identified. End quote. Some investigations are marked by a lack of evidence, a void that makes prosecution virtually impossible like a puzzle with no pieces. Following an initial drought of information, though, this case was marked by conflicting information, conflicts which endure to this day. Humans require explanations for tragedy. There are things we need to know that we have to know. And while explanations elude us in many tragedies, without answers, 
the unexplained gives way to the unsubstantiated. Rumors based partly on truth, partly on second or third-hand gossip, even well-intentioned gossip. Left too long without resolution or without a credible theory put forth by those with accountability over the investigation, community whispers and unsourced theories from the supermarket, salon, or car line grow into full-blown soap opera plots with dramatizations inserted to explain surmised actual events, a cacophony of confusion which spirals further outward from the truth at the center. As Sled's investigation unfolded, it seemed to be adding to this cacophony of confusion and compounding the tragedy with the agent in charge seemingly more invested in pursuing information that would undermine the conclusion vocalized by Lisa than in pursuing the details of the investigation that could lead to answers, prosecution, and justice for DJ. But there was one arrest coming. A month after DJ was found on the tracks, Steve Creel, was taken into custody and charged with being in possession of a stolen shotgun. You've been listening to Fitz Files, a true crime and corruption podcast written, directed, and produced by Fitz News, the team that first broke the Murdoch Murders Crime and Corruption Saga and the Cheer Incorporated Sex Abuse Scandal. I'm Will Folks, and along with producer and lead investigator Jen Wood, Special Projects Director Dylan Nolan, Researcher Callie Lyons and the rest of our team, we are bringing you this series of investigative reports. Here, we uncover layers of truth lurking beneath the surface. We offer exclusive interviews and insights. We provide critical background and context and reveal previously unreported details of the crimes we cover. If you appreciate independent journalism, please support our work by subscribing to FitzNews.com. There you can view all of our original reporting, browse case files, and be the first to receive breaking news on all the stories we cover. Your support makes everything we do possible. Your subscription helps us hold those in power accountable for their actions. So please subscribe today. That's F-I-T-S-N-E-W-S dot com. And while you're at it, please like us on the podcast platform of your choice and consider leaving a review.